Welcome to Boardroom's Best, the premier podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, and those who want to lead and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, and high-flying entrepreneurial companies. Now with your host, Nancy May, CEO of BoardBench, let's charge ahead with great leaders worldwide as we learn how to foster the best in ourselves and our firms with greater courage, confidence, and character. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to The Boardroom's Best. This is your host, Nancy May. And today, I have a very special guest, John Griswold, who is formerly with the Common Fund and is also with the Association of Governing Boards of Universities and Colleges. And today, we're going to discuss a broad variety of topics as it relates to issues in fund boards, which is where he was working on with the Common Fund and still consults and advises to the chairman and the CEO over here at the Common Fund, as well as their investors. And in the whole university environment, which, as many of us know, have been front and center in much of the public concern or questions, especially on the admittance scandal and a variety of other things going on in the world today. So, John, welcome to The Boardroom's Best. Thank you, Nancy, and, and hello. This has been a, an interesting invitation. I'm, I'm interested to hear the questions you have. Well, we've got a lot of questions, and it's just a dialogue like we do all the time. So, John, why don't you share a little bit about some of your background here? First of all, at the Common Fund, we're, we're actually recording today. Fine. we happy to. I spent 25 years, roughly a little more, at Common Fund. I have joined as head of client service, but I have had a more activity, actually more responsibility in an area that really involves research, publications, and investor education. And actually, we started a, a group within Common Fund called Common Fund Institute in 1999. And that institution has blossomed into quite a well-known group that basically conducts convenings of trustees and senior financial staff. And it's a training cooperation as well, but also does research into the investment practices and behaviors of investors, both trustees and staff, in the foundation, endowment, healthcare, and general charitable nonprofit area. So you've actually been a real educator to the investor as to what's going on in the institutions that they own a part of. Well, they're what are known as fiduciaries. Right. So, uh, which basically means you're managing or looking over, monitoring other people's money. So not just the investors, we're also talking about educating the boards of those fiduciaries. Correct. Many institutions, particularly educational institutions, have endowments, which are long-term funds. And those funds produce income to help support the operations of the charities or the university or a hospital, whatever you have you. They are permanent funds in many cases. Donors give large gifts to them in many cases as well and specify that they should be used for certain things like scholarships or faculty support or a particular wing of a hospital that's going to contain surgeons, whatever. But in fact, the endowment is a, as I say, a permanent fund that very often is invested by professional investors with professional institutional quality funds. So the boards of colleges and universities that we're talking about here and the endowment funds and the large not-for-profits is not just a job for somebody to look at what's happening in the institution, but also it's a truly a financial job in many cases to assure the longevity and the health and well-being of any of those institutions. That's correct. And in fact, members of the board are recruited 
for their specific experience and skill in certain areas. And in the case of running an endowment, you want people who are experienced investors in institutional settings. Very often, these people are on multiple boards and lend their expertise, their skill to that board for that purpose. Just like you would hire perhaps someone, a lawyer from a law firm to help you wade through regulation or legal issues that the institution faces. It's good to have people with common sense and experience, broad experience, but it's also good to have specific professional experience in many cases. Similar to public company boards, similar kind of thing. So it's not that much. I think sometimes on the outside, we see, especially in college institutions, that people will be asked to join one of those boards, one because they're wealthy families, their kids went there, they went there, and they're looking to write a check. It's a lot more than that. In many it cases, is. it yeah. is. It donors are important to the board in many cases, but they should certainly not dominate the board activities or discussions. Uh, but and donors, those boards get huge. I mean, they you do. Just, if they're check writing boards, I actually I had an experience with a very large institution in the Northeast at one point, and the um, the interim or the incoming chairman of the board had asked me for some help in looking at balancing out the board, and I said I need to talk to your president first because. Want to get sort of a sense of who he is and what his thought process, because a board works to support a president or a CEO oh, uh, as well. And but it was interesting in that in forty-five minutes to an hour, when I asked the president how does his institution differ from the one down the street, I still after an hour couldn't figure it out. I, and I said to the chairman, I said you got a problem. That's right. If your leadership can't tell you what is the point of differentiation and why your institution is better than the next, you guys are like in the toilet. That's right. You need clear, that may be a marketing job, but it really is something that the board itself ought to discuss. But if the leadership doesn't understand, then, then, you know, how can the rest of the institution And then have the president or the senior administrators come back with a recommendation as to how that should be phrased or put out into into media. But clearly, everyone should should have a short, punchy description of what is the benefit of the organization Live, they're breathe, facing. Eat it, know it, know it. It's it's, you know, it's like the old Nike. Just do it, right? Yes, that's right. Exactly. It doesn't need to be a slogan, but it needs no. to be a you say a clear description, concise, crisp description of what makes a particular nonprofit valuable to the public. Because in fact, they're tax exempt. They are regulated for that reason. And not just writing on the wall. Somebody has, the institution actually has to believe it and live it. So speaking about believing and living and I don't say eating your own words, you probably don't, that's probably the wrong way to say it. (laughs) But really living what it is at the heart of any particular institution. In, In the last year or so, we have been fraught in the news media with ethics as it relates to the admission scandals in colleges and universities. And big ones, big names that have been smeared through the news. How does that impact the way these boards are thinking and operating going forward? I mean, certainly they're cleaning up the scandal and they're concerned about that. Is that something that the boards really are focused on, or is that something that you say the boards say, okay, it's a PR job and and we're not? No, because it, it's a different it, kind of fiduciary than just financial fiduciary. Boards should be taking a scandal like that very seriously. They are obliged to be not only fiduciaries, but to monitor the activities of the staff and the entire organization. But there's an old expression called noses in, fingers out. And in fact, noses in implies that you're sort of sniffing around, (laughs) to extend the metaphor. But in fact, 
you need to understand what it is that these people are doing that you hired. And the first person you hire, the most important job you hire for, and one of the most important jobs a board does, is to hire the CEO, the president, the executive director, whatever that title is. But in fact, you've got to be careful not to be a micromanager and be digging around and, and ordering people around on the staff. It is a it's balanced, not a day-to-day it's job. It's not a day-to-day job. You're, you come in periodically and ask tough questions about what's being done. In the case of this admission scandal, it is a very difficult thing for a board who meets four times a year and is on committees that don't necessarily meet on campus and don't interact with many of the staff, very difficult for them to have known about that going on, what has been going on in those admissions departments. The admissions people themselves, of course, aren't talking. So unless you have a whistleblower internally that has blown the whistle on what's going on because they realize it's unethical or illegal, there's very little chance that this isn't going to last for quite a while. And these scandals go on for years in many cases undiscovered. And of course, the role of the institution, at least from an economic perspective, is to educate students and educate a population. So the more you got in there, no matter how they sort of got in there, is an issue. Yet, I won't say that the marketability of a sheepskin can can make or break somebody in some cases. Well, there's a great deal of chatter now about the economic value of a degree. I've heard that, yeah. That is probably overdone to some extent because, in fact, the training, if you will, in vocational schools is quite different than a liberal arts education at a prestigious four-year. And just as valuable arts. to somebody who's going into a different The liberal arts, it's, it's coming back a little now. I've read a couple of articles recently that liberal arts education has gotten a beating for a long time. A lot of schools have, have been shrinking their liberal arts departments for lack of interest by the, from the students that are coming in. But a, an Ivy League or a, a prestigious elite university is uh, historically the place where leaders are trained, and leaders have to have very broad education. More well-rounded. They shouldn't be trained for business. Right. They shouldn't be trained for technology. If they want to be math academics, that's fine. But they shouldn't be considered broad-based people trained to, to take on the world, if you will, in the leadership positions of most large organizations, whether they be corporations or government. Now, that's kind of an interesting conversation. I'm, I'm going to dive down that one a little bit, because when you say that leaders are best having a broader type of education versus one that is, let's say, strictly programming and technology, that really has an impact on how other boards, not just university boards or not-for-profits are starting to think or should be thinking about the recruitment of the CEO for their companies, even our political leaders, right, who go into just poli-sci only now from an education perspective, but also how boards, public and private company boards, are really thinking about the composition of their makeup and what does that mean in true guidance and oversight of their own institutions? Well, the makeup of boards is undergone and is undergoing still tremendous scrutiny. Uh, There are calls for diversity of not only gender or race, but of obviously what's called cognitive diversity, how people think, what's their experience, what's their background. And having been on many boards for almost 50 years, This is an area which is really undergoing a fair amount of scrutiny and discussion because the most effective boards have good, solid, often heated discussions, but not getting to disrespect of each other. In other words, there should be a good argument 
about a lot of issues that go on. Yet there's a, good a bias discussion, that can happen. But in clearly, those it's got to be right. respectful of each right. other. But very often, boards tend to be rubber stamp organizations. Yeah. Something is produced by the president or his staff and presented to the board, and they just is any is there any discussion? Silent. So clearly, there ought to be the makeup of the board, the governance committee of the board, really should have a slate of people who come from diverse backgrounds, come from diverse personalities, perhaps even, and may represent a whole bunch of different constituencies and stakeholders that the organization has affected. And in fact, can use they can use their different points of view as part of the discussions that go on in the boardroom. You think about the succession and the bench. It's mm-hmm. actually how Board Bench got started, thinking about the bench of boards. And many of them really are not ready for that. They wait to the last minute. But well, they, to, that they can be put on committees, even right. if they're not trustees. And that's a very wise and popular technique to be able to identify promising people, people who are willing to work hard for the organization who are clearly loyal to it and eager to help, but have a special skill, a special quality that is needed by the board itself. So after several years on the committee, if that person's proven to be a valuable member of the committee, then they should be considered for the board. That's an easy thing to do. It's not and like that's a farm easier team. to do in the not-for-profit world or it the is. university world, a public company. They don't necessarily have that luxury of that's doing right. it. But there are ways to manage through advisory boards and support in that particular perspective. So when we think about succession, one of the things that we've discussed in the past is the whole process of the board evaluation, which, again, can be a rubber stamp in some cases. I've seen boards that will just bring in a general counsel and say, all right, give us a list of questions. The GC presents the questions. It's a board discussion, and everybody plays nice in the sandbox. But that really doesn't necessarily get at the opinions and beliefs and the observations of the other board members from a peer-to-peer perspective where there's a certain level of comfort saying things behind closed walls, right? Right. And, yes. So what are some of the things that you think is, is happening in, in this process that's working? And then where does it really need to be ratcheted up better? Well, a board self-assessment or evaluation, there are different terms for that. Right. I am more used to self-assessment or assessment by a professional right. uh, should be conducted with plenty of time allotted to it, the board should be given a questionnaire that has fairly straightforward questions about how effective they think the board is, what's their role, are they allowed to speak, are they dealing with important issues that are critical to the board-level discussions. I would recommend that they have a facilitator for that assessment, a professional consultant or advisor, simply because the use of that information is critical as feedback to the board leadership and the board, uh, the administration of the organization. And hopefully there are constructive criticisms that the board, individual board members have offered from their own personal observation. I've been on the board of board source for a long time or was right. head of it. They are very good at producing a very good assessment questionnaires and that sort of thing. But there's a for the not-for-profit. For the not-for-profit right. world. Well. The Association of Governing Boards that I'm a senior consultant with is higher ed only. Right. So those are very high level boards in many cases, very large boards in, other, in many cases as well. And those are more specialized discussions about higher ed institutions, obviously. Of course, there are many, many different kinds of higher right. ed institutions themselves, public, private, you know, community colleges, et cetera. But in the case of board source, we had very good, and in, in case of AGB as well, very good assessment instruments that can be used by the board itself, but I think that ought to be used as kind of a primer for the board to get used to being able to express themselves and begin to assess whether the board is being effective in how they're 
acting vis-a-vis the not only the interests of the institution, but perhaps with the administration? Are the, is the board-CEO relationship healthy? Is there a good discussion with the board on a regular basis? Now, it doesn't have to be every meeting, but some issue, some observation that the president could come in or bring an expert in and talk about, and the board has a rich discussion around that that then leads to thinking about, or have we got the right policies? How can we take advantage of this situation? Or is this a potential problem that we need to look into? Is it a risk problem? There are lots of reasons to do assessment. And if they're really done well, they turn up a lot of concerns that you might not know were there uh, without that technique. It also requires that the individuals who are the members of the board or the board of trustees are honest with themselves and others, which it really, in some cases, works well in others when they just want to be there from, uh, I'll call it a prestige perspective, because we do so those, yeah, right? That's yeah, right. honorary. And, and making those decisions. To, so who do we, you know, maybe we should ask John to step down, you know, what do we do mm-hmm. now? is not an easy thing for an institution to do because in many well, cases it, they're it, afraid it, of that. If the instrument of self-assessment is written well and the instructions are clear, the individual board members should be given it so that they can write it up privately. It can be done. Right. Most of them are done online now, so you're sitting at your computer keyboard and you can say whatever you want. No attribution. And there's, it, can, it might be attributed or not, but at least to the people running the the questionnaire, I mean, running the, the, right. the survey. Yeah. But board member ought to be given the questionnaire and assured that it will be used in confidence so that they can say anything critical that they like and not get in trouble for it. Not target, yeah. The information itself, though, ought to be looked at by a professional person who's used to analyzing these assessments, these, these valuations, and care should be taken to use it judiciously so that you're not just disrupting and blowing up the whole process by coming out and saying, gee, we got a real problem here. The board doesn't like the CEO and we can't, you know, we don't know what to do. But anyway, there's a, there's a way of doing it that I think is pretty well established. So, but the board members should feel that they're being listened to, that, that their opinions are being taken into account. And those opinions, of course, on the board's members' case ought to be carefully crafted from their standpoint. When, let's say the end of an assessment is done, it's given back to the board for the input, and they're able to see what the end results were. And quite frankly, the CEO or the president of the institution and the management of the institution, so they should really be involved, because it's a symbiotic relationship that a board and a, and a president should have. I That's mean, right. This is trust. My, well, my, a board, in many cases, the CEO might be a board member. Many are, many are not. What uh, is it, your belief on that one? I think they should not be in most cases. Yes. I think they should be I an ex officio member, which means they are of the office, but they are not They are not full voting board members. The board is their boss. The board is their boss, but they should be, uh, the board should meet in executive session without the right. CEO, without any staff, Almost every meeting, we had a half hour, an hour cut out of our agenda for, at board source every t- for every meeting. So that we could, in many cases, there was no discussion. There were, we allowed the, anybody who wanted to talk to talk, but there was if there was no issue, then you just say that's fine. But we'll talk next time. So when we talked about size, some of these institutions have very large boards. Too large in many cases. So when is too big? Too big. And when is the right size enough? I think it depends on the institution. They, I mean, our research here at Common Fund was looking at those issues. In the case of higher education, they tend to be larger partly because they are 
composed of many donors. Right. Uh, there are many committees, and really, I always thought that the, the size of the board should be in relation to the work of the board. And the work of the board is carried out primarily by the committees. The committees could be in, in higher ed, there could be eight committees, standing right. committees, so then and there might be task members. forces and, and temporary committees periodically as well. So you might have a number of them. In the case of higher ed, I mean, it's a familiar list. There's an executive committee, a governance committee, trustee committee, and then, of course, buildings and grounds, finance, investment, et cetera. So you've got to look at different charities, different nonprofits with an eye toward what's the task at hand and how, do, how does the board need to be populated to get that work done. So it's not surprising to see 30, 40, 50 people on a higher ed board. That's pretty large, and right. you, you should try to keep it down to the extent you can. Recruiting donors, you made the point earlier, just because they are powerful donors and powerful personalities, outspoken and so forth, you've got to be careful putting those people on a board because a board has to act as a team, and there's no I in team. No, you're right. You've got to have a, a congenial but constructive discussion at every meeting. Speaking of congenial and constructive discussion, in just as in public company boards, there are issues of strategy and direction, what's going on. There are similar discussions in the institutional boards, whether it be a fund board of an institution or the the board of board of trustees of the college or university. How are those things being brought in? Because when you've got so much complexity in the institution going on to begin with, how are those discussions being brought forward when, in fact, a board may not necessarily even understand the business of an institution to begin with? Well, if you're on a board, I think it's incumbent upon you to be doing a lot of research and reading, particularly at the outset when you join a board. The other thing I would recommend is the board chair bring in an expert who can explain complex issues in educated layperson's language, probably at each meeting or at least one or two meetings a year. I think it's a very good practice. You could bring in the expert from the staff if you have someone who's particularly good at explaining what they're doing, but particularly in, in medical case, in, in healthcare organizations, you have very complex discussions, and very often the board is composed of people from the medical profession, obviously surgeons and, and doctors, but also there should be people who are from outside the actual healthcare institution who can explain complex issues in the Which is difficult area. for some of these types of narrow channels that they will accept somebody from an outside. I see it time and time again in, uh, you, know, you mentioned medical, so medical companies and organizations and maybe medical divisions of, of universities all want the doctors, they all want the medical pros, Correct. but quite frankly, not all of those people really understand the business of medicine as opposed to the saving of the life or making the quality of life better. And that's a problem yeah, from a business perspective. they're used to getting their own way because they, they're powerful people in many cases. They're head of the department and have been for a long right. time. They can be very, very difficult to have them bend to the needs of the board, particularly around an issue which isn't necessarily in their best interest from their point of view. Now, yeah. it may be a very good thing for the hospital, but the doctor might think that well, I've been practicing in that specialty for decades. And I, know I know better. more than you. And, yeah. I, and so they come in a bit arrogant and uh, try to have their way. 
that can be the case with any number of professions. I'm not picking sure. on doctors in particular, but I'm, I agree. But I think this boards, which are comprised primarily of specialists in the area of the mission of the organization, can be very contentious and can really go off the rails if well, they're not careful. Well, you'd be careful. blindsided because you don't know what's coming around the corner from a different competitive environment. So thinking on the front of, again, the universities, the colleges, and even just the general not-for-profit area that might touch on the education market right now and, and the funds that relate to that, the endowments, what are some of the emerging trends that you see going on right now that the average outsider might not necessarily know about? Well, there's a great big push in the endowment and generally in the investment business right. broadly for lower costs and fees. And that has come about for a couple of reasons. One is the popularity of index funds, passive right. investment. Index funds are very low cost. They represent a broad asset class or strategy. And, and we're talking lower cost and fees as it relates to managing To managing the endowment. That's right. right. And there is pressure on the investment committees, particularly to lower the cost of management. And get more return out of it. And, and of course, higher return. Now, we've been through 10 years, very long time in the market cycles. We've been through a 10-year bull market. Those have benefited the index fund performance. So index funds have become very popular and taken over a larger and larger percentage of the total ownership of stocks and bonds in the public markets. That's one issue, is how do you control costs, but you know, what's the chance that we're going to have a market crash or a long period of, of down markets? And in fact, we're seeing a lot more volatility today yeah, exactly. around this very issue where people are thinking, oh my goodness, I'm exposed, very exposed to the stock market, and here we're seeing these large losses in a given day. Actually, on a percentage basis, it's not that extraordinary, right. but in fact, it scares people. The media of, has yeah. a way of making it sound just like it's Armageddon. And the the investors really have to be cognizant of the fact that they are going to be they are going to be hurt if we have a bad drawdown, a bear market. But they ought to be consistently looking at the cost of their investments from a standpoint of am I getting extra value because I'm paying a higher price or not? Right. And that's really the question that investment committee ought to, to really think about, talk about in context of what's the mix between active management and passive management within our portfolio, and are we too exposed from a risk standpoint to a downturn in the market? That goes to other areas as well. There are various ways of hedging or guarding portfolio against severe damage because of a downturn, but those hedging strategies tend to be expensive if you use them for any length of time. So you're creating greater risk. In well, you might different. be. You've yeah. got to be careful. Um, certainly, it's not investing is not a area of expertise for most people. Uh, it, there's a lot of jargon in it. There's a lot sure. of technical issues that have to be discerned when you're going into it. And it takes long experience and education to get familiar and comfortable with some of the principles of it, but it's not impossible. We do a, a common fund. We've done investor education uh, for a long time, and we try to bring in people we think are going to be objective and uh, truthful mm -hmm. about what the risks are as well as the, the possibility of return. But there are lots and lots of different ways of, of, of uh, making mistakes in this area. So you've, yeah, got to be, you've got to yeah. be aware of where those risks are and where the the need for return, which usually is 6 7% when you take in 5% spending, which is common, and 2 or 
inflation, uh, you've got to cover that if you're going to continue to withdraw that amount of money each year for your operations. All right. So the only truth is that there is no sure bet. That's right. Uh, but that's true of anything, that's right? That's right. <laughs> um, it, it, the, what I think the, the, one of the takeaways in this conversation is as people may be or any of our listeners may be asked to consider joining the board of their, their you know, alma mater or another institution, that they have to understand the role and responsibility of, of, of a trustee of some of these organizations, that it is not just an oversight from do we have the right students, you know, what are the professors doing, what is our political standing, but truly it's a numbers game. If we can't keep the finances of the institution strong and healthy, and that's true of any for-profit and public company board too, but even probably more so for the academic institution where strategy is not the same as a consumer product. Oh, absolutely. And um, if they don't, if they are not true experts in the financial implications and, and how to understand that, then they're probably not the right person for that institution. Or, yes, and I, I think I've always said that you don't want to have a, 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 an investment a committee, a right. bunch of investment experts. You need people with common sense, so lawyers, doctors, educators, uh, people with just that you who may be personal investing, uh, investing personally and have done well, but have good common sense and and can ask know how to ask good questions that are probing. That's the key right there. So you if you. The best thing to do is to bring in, as I say, experts at times who can brief you on a particular strategy that you're using or considering using. Say you're, say you're in stocks and bonds and you want to think about using hedge funds. Well, hedge right. funds encompass an enormous number of strategies, right. and there are certain ones that are probably more suitable for you than others. So you've got to have right. someone who's an expert in hedge funds come in who can explain what a hedge fund is to begin with and begin to give you some idea of the options available to you and what the risks are and, and return expectations right. for those types of funds. So, and that applies to anything, private equity, venture capital, sure. real estate, whatever it is. But in fact, endowments, particularly educational endowments, are highly diversified funds. And the question is, does the investment committee, the investment committee members have the education and experience to understand all of the strategies that you're using. If they don't, then the question is, should you be using them? What is the future of higher education? You see more and more that are saying, I don't need the college education anymore. I'm going to become the entrepreneur and rule the world. I think this is an overblown statement that you don't need college education anymore. I think college education has been around for hundreds of years. It will continue to be around for hundreds of years. It may change and probably should. The needs of the country should be reflected. The type of education or how education is delivered or handled? Both. There's more delivery online. There's more and more hybrid types of of courses. You remember the great excitement over over MOOCs, M-O-O-C-S, the massive open online courses. Well, those have morphed into hybrid online plus partly in-person courses. In many cases, master's programs are no longer two or three years. They may be one year, but quite intense courses online plus a bit in person. And they are quite effective in, in educating their students. The difference now is that the student population has become quite different than it used to be. It used to be four years straight through college, and you got your right. bachelor's, and then if you wanted to go to graduate school, it was another two or three years plus. Now, it's uncommon, relatively, to see the percentages well below 50% of traditional four-year students. So you have a lot of students going to 
community colleges, vocational colleges, two-year colleges, then going up to finish at a four-year school. Right. There are many more going into business or going into a profession after two years, whether it be vocational or regular liberal arts college. And in fact, the focus on a, a career is fine. But as I said before, I think the criticism of the liberal arts education is overblown. And I think there's a right. ver- great value in liberal arts education simply because it, it, you become more well-rounded. You become more aware of what is available to people who are, are used to going into companies or professions where you're going, a lot of different skills and experiences are going to be demanded of you, or at least you will be more successful if you have that broader Better experience. Better communicator, yeah. Being able to write well, being able to speak well, speak in public, to be able to understand principles rather than just technical details of a situation or a problem that the organization might face. Being able to rationally describe something to another person, very often missing. This actually might be the channeling of education into different quadrants or different verticals may actually be the fault of the corporation over time based on the needs. So the corporations are looking more and more at the universities as a way to get their training versus the corporation in many cases used to also educate and train their their employees. But the one thing that as a society and as a people, whether you're, you're on a board or you're not, you aspire to be on a board or a CEO, is that as soon as you stop learning, you're dead. That's right. Your life should be a continuous learning experience. I've always been curious about things that I didn't know much about. It doesn't take much to take your time and read about them or talk to people that you think would be interesting to talk to. But you have to have that intellectual curiosity. You have to be a little bit nosy almost. Yeah. You have to be able to engage somebody in a conversation and ask good questions. And still be and, a bit of a kid in the candy fun. store, Absolutely. right? Checking it out Absolutely. what's new and fun and interesting. Yeah. Well, John, this has been a terrific discussion. Thank you very much. We will have additional information about some of the work that John is doing, some points on the Common Fund, which I personally find very fascinating. They will include as show notes. And if you have any questions, please keep them coming. If you have not given us a rating in iTunes or Spotify or CastBox, I'd appreciate your star ratings because I even looked the other day. I didn't even notice we had a five star. So I was pretty excited about that. Keep them coming. And I appreciate your listenership. And thank you. Stay tuned for the next show. We'll be coming on soon. Thanks, John. Thank you, Nancy. Take care. Bye-bye. Boardroom's Best is brought to you in part with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.